We're continuing our series in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 5 this morning. Daniel 5. Feel free to look along in your Bible, or if you would like, feel free to uh, use an electronic device that has a Bible on it. Stephen Hinch is an award-winning photographer, and especially is he known for his amazing photographs of Yellowstone National Park. Time magazine had hired him as a much younger man to photograph the destruction some fires had caused in Yellowstone. He packed all his photography gear and left to complete that assignment. The magazine made arrangements at the local airport and the call came to him that a small plane would be waiting for him on the runway. He jumped in his rental car and rushed to the airport. He found a young man on the runway sitting in a single engine aircraft. He jumped in and said, let's go. Once in the air, he instructed the pilot to make passes through the fire danger area. As the plane got closer to the target area, Stephen pulled out his equipment and started taking pictures. The pilot, seeing that, seemed puzzled and said, why are you taking pictures? Stephen said, because I am on assignment. I am a photographer, and photographers take pictures. There was this stunned silence for about 10 seconds or so, and then the pilot said, I'm sorry, I thought you were the flight instructor. (laughs) The lesson from that confusion was that we can be in trouble and not even know it. Belshazzar was in serious trouble, and he didn't have a clue. At this time, Nabonidus and Belshazzar were considered co-regents of the Babylonian Empire. Belshazzar was Nabonidus' oldest son. Both were co-rulers in Babylonia. Nabonidus ruled from northern Arabia, and Belshazzar ruled from Babylon itself. We mentioned last time Cyrus and the media Persian armies had invaded the empire. Nabonidus and his troops met them and were defeated. Belshazzar was aware that that thousands of soldiers had then encamped around the gigantic Babylonian wall because after that defeat, then the armies continued on in to Babylon. But he didn't seem concerned. Babylon was a massive fortress and Belshazzar felt he could wait it out. He felt so comfortable waiting it out that he organized a huge feast. It was a big bash. He invited a thousand important people to that banquet. There was eating and music and dancing and were certain drunkenness. And then he sent some servants to find the sacred gold and silver vessels his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, before his conversion. Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the Jerusalem temple decades earlier. Those guests then proceeded to profane the true God in using those utensils in worship to the pagan Babylonian deities. Then during the heart of those festivities, a miraculous finger appeared and started to write a message on the plastered wall. It was defined graffiti. God had sent an important message to Belshazzar in the form of a supernatural finger writing on the wall. Belshazzar witnessed this act, this finger writing on the wall, and he was horrified. His face turned white as a sheet. His knees knocked together so hard he couldn't stand. This painting is of that, of that famous scene. is from Rembrandt. 
Rembrandt, a 17th century Dutch painter, considered one of the greatest visual artists of all time. I read some months ago in London one of Rembrandt's paintings that had been hidden from the public for more than four decades just sold for $33.2 million. For the record, I do not own a Rembrandt. Not sure I've ever seen one. Um, but he was an amazing painter. Belshazzar was unable to read the writing on the wall. So he called the counselors together, and none of them could help decipher the meaning. He was desperate because he understood this message had to be something important, and no one could read it for him. And that brings us to verse 10. Daniel 5, starting at verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Okay, that's not going to happen. Actually, Belshazzar would die in just a matter of hours. O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor your countenance change. Paraphrased as, King, please, please, don't be so upset. It's okay, don't be upset. This queen mother wasn't one of Belshazzar's wives. Remember, he had multiple wives. Historians believe she was probably his grandmother. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's grandfather. So this queen mother was probably Nebuchadnezzar's widow and Belshazzar's grandmother. She hadn't been in attendance at this celebration. She hadn't been invited, apparently. But she heard about all the commotion, and she decided to bring Belshazzar a message. She remembered Daniel from all of his interaction with Nebuchadnezzar, and she knew how valuable an asset he had been to Nebuchadnezzar in solving dreams and solving difficult problems, and she felt he could be of some assistance to Belshazzar. So she wanted to recommend Daniel to him. Verse 11, There is a man in your kingdom, Daniel, in whom is the spirit of the holy God. Notice she said the same thing about Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar had said earlier in Daniel 4 and verse 8. There is a man in your kingdom, Daniel, in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, now remember from last time, she met Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was his grandfather because there was no word in the ancient Aramaic at that time to describe grandfather. So male ancestors were considered just fathers. Nebuchadnezzar was his grandfather. Light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, uh, meaning his grandfather, the king made him Daniel, chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Verse 12. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas. Now, an enigma is something mysterious and puzzling, something difficult to understand. An enigma is a conundrum, a brain teaser. And this was all found in Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar was Daniel's Babylonian name. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. So this queen mother, who was probably Nebuchadnezzar's widow, had total confidence in Daniel. She had had a front row seat 
in watching him do for Nebuchadnezzar what no one else in the empire had been able to do. So she suggested that Belshazzar call him in an attempt to interpret his handwriting on the wall. Notice Daniel was also not in attendance at this massive celebration. He was at least 80 at this time. We would consider him probably semi-retired. Verse 13, Then Daniel was brought in before the king, Belshazzar. The king, Belshazzar, spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who was one of the captives from Judah, whom my father, meaning his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, the king brought from Judah? Verse 14, I have heard of you, Daniel, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Verse 15, Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not give the interpretation of the thing. Verse 16, And I have heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third, the third ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar offered Daniel some serious incentives. He enticed Daniel to participate in solving this problem through offering him position and possessions and power. The problem was Daniel couldn't be bought. Most people have a price but not Daniel. Verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king, and make known to him the interpretation. So paraphrase Daniel responded to Belshazzar, uh, Belshazzar, just keep your stuff. I don't need it. He might have said that for two reasons. One, because material possessions didn't seem to motivate him that much. And two, because he understood that this promise that he would become third in the empire would soon mean absolutely nothing. Because after that night, the Babylonian empire would no longer exist. It would become the media Persian empire. Verse 18, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father, again, Remember, Nebuchadnezzar says Belshazzar's grandfather. A kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. Verse 19. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled in fear before him. Whomever he wished, notice, notice the power this man possessed. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. Verse 20, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Verse 21, then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew until he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. People do forget. And in case Belshazzar had forgotten, Daniel did a historical review and reminded Belshazzar about Nebuchadnezzar's rise to power, 
his fall, and then his rise to power again after he converted from idolatrous religion to worship the true God. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had become extremely prideful, so God was forced to humble him. He became 5150. 5150 is the police code. It means a mentally disturbed person. Nebuchadnezzar lost control of his mental faculties, and he became as an animal. He lived in the fields. He ate grass as the animals would. He was a subhuman creature for a seven-year period of time. Verse 22, But you, his son, grandson, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. Notice, Belshazzar already knew all that Daniel had just told him. He might have forgotten bits and pieces. Uh, it was probably in the back of his mind, but he knew that. The problem is, a cynical German philosopher, Frederick Hegel, said, the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. And he hadn't. As we said last time, Belshazzar couldn't claim ignorance. He was aware of all of this. He chose to ignore this. And Daniel accused Belshazzar of continuous, unrepentant pride. Verse 23. And you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house, meaning God's house, before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods, false gods, of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. The principal sin committed that night in that banquet was to take those sacred vessels that had been stolen from the Jerusalem temple decades earlier. Remember those vessels had been consecrated to the true God, the Jewish God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those vessels had been used in authentic Jewish worship. And then Nebuchadnezzar, in one of those raids, uh, stole them, had them put into pagan temples, and there they had been stored all this time. And Belshazzar had the audacity to call for those same vessels to be brought into the banquet hall and then used to worship false gods. That constituted extreme blasphemy. And that was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. And God said, after seeing that, enough. That's enough. We're done here. Verse 24. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, God. And this writing was written. This handwriting was probably written in a language that wasn't a known human language. That's the reason no one could read this statement. God enabled Daniel to both read this statement and then recite the interpretation of that statement in Aramaic. And Aramaic was a language all of them could understand. So this is in Aramaic. The interpretation is in Aramaic. Verse 25. And this is the inscription that was written. Mini, mini, Tikal Eupharsin. Mini, mini, Tikal Eupharsin. Let's repeat that out loud and do it together. Mini, mini, Tikal Eupharsin. 
One more time. Meeny, meeny, tico, you farsen. So now you can amuse your friends and family. You know some Aramaic. Okay, that's so impressive. There are four words in this inscription. And one of them is repeated, meeny, meeny. So altogether, there are just three different words in this statement. Meeny, tico, you farsen. Now, uh, that's the statement. That's how it read. Now, uh, Daniel is going to interpret that. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of each word. Meaning, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Meaning means numbered. Numbered. In modern vernacular, meaning means Belshazzar, your number is up. You're finished. And to be certain Belshazzar understood that, notice God said it twice. Meany, meany. Verse 27. Tico, you have been weighed in the balances. Balances were scales and found wanting. Tico has a double meaning. It means to be weighed and to be found too light. To be weighed and then to be found too light. At that time, people would weigh things by placing whatever needed to be weighed on one side of a scale. And then a standard weight or weights uh, would be placed on the other side of the scale to see if the commodity uh, matched the standard weights. The objective was to determine the actual weight of the item to be purchased uh, through balancing the scale. That was the, that was the process. You weighed what wanted to be weighed on one side and then standard weights were put on the other side until the scale balanced. So God was announcing to Belshazzar, Babylonian, Babylonia has been weighed on God's scales. Belshazzar, you have been weighed on God's scales. And according to God's standard, it's coming up too light. Belshazzar and his empire couldn't meet God's standards. From a religious perspective, the kingdom came up too light. From a moral perspective, the kingdom came up too light. Now the ancient Egyptians understood this form of judgment, although it was reversed and misappropriated to their pagan god, uh, Osiris. According to Egyptian tradition, after death, a person was taken to the hall of judgment where his heart was removed from his body and weighed on the scales against a feather. Standard weight being a feather. If the heart was light, too light, or light, he was considered pure. If it was heavier than it should have been, then it was said he was weighted down with sin and he would suffer punishment for that sin. That was a pagan superstition. Again, it's... It's the basic idea, though, just in reverse and dedicated to a pagan god, goddess. Belshazzar had been weighed on the divine scale, God's scale. Babylonia had been weighed on those scales, he and Babylonia, and both were unable to meet God's standards. Verse 28, Pires, P-E-R-E-S, pronounced Pires, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Pyrrhus, or Eupharsin, means to divide and to break. To divide and to break. And this word implies that the Babylonian Empire would be broken and conquered. Now let me address some apparent confusion here. In verse 25, the original message we just read, the message on the wall read Eupharsin. And then in verse 28, 
the verse reads, Pyrrhus. So why are there two different words? The common explanation is that Eupharsin is plural and Pyrrhus is singular. So it's essentially the same word. In the most basic form, meaning, meaning, tiku, Eupharsin means numbered, numbered, too light, and divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed in too light, and divided. Through the means of this statement, God prophesied that Belshazzar would die and the Babylonian Empire would end and another empire would succeed it. It's interesting that the prophet Jeremiah, almost a century before this, had prophesied this in, um, in almost exact detail, everything that was going to happen that night. That's found in Jeremiah 50, verses 1 through 3. Then remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream from Daniel 2 also prophesied that the media Persian Empire would succeed Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian Empire. Remember from that dream the statue of a man? Remember the uh, head made from gold? That represented the Babylonian Empire. And then the chest and shoulders were made from silver. And that represented the media Persian Empire. So the overthrow of Babylonia that night happened just as prophesied in Nebuchadnezzar's dream earlier. That feast transpired on the 16th day of the month of Tisri. Tisri, pardon me. Tisri. Tisri is the second, seventh month on the Hebrew calendar. Um, the 16th day of Tisri corresponds to the 11th or 12th of our month of October, 539 BC. That's when it happened. On that date, on that night, God extended his hand and he wrote on the wall this statement. Meanie, meanie, your number's up, Belshazzar. Tikal, you and your kingdom have been weighed and found wanting. You farsin, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. That's the message. That's the meaning of the message. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command... And they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, Belshazzar still didn't understand how serious this message was. So he insisted, after hearing this, that Daniel accept the promotion he had promised to the one that could read and interpret the handwriting. So he put a chain of gold around him, made a proclamation, announced him the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. Belshazzar died just hours after Daniel spoke to him. Verse 31, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. We can get into this more at another time. But some commentators teach that Darius and Cyrus, we mentioned Cyrus earlier, Darius and Cyrus were one and the same ruler. Darius was probably a throne name and not a personal name for Cyrus as the head of the Persian Empire. Now, Herodias died in 426 BC. Herodias was a Greek writer and considered the first actual historian and according to Herodias this is how that prophetical statement on the wall was fulfilled listen carefully 
Darius, or Cyrus, whichever name you prefer, was the leader of the Medes and Persians. He and his armies were intent on conquering Babylon. His troops had besieged, meaning surrounded Babylon, thousands of them, and were waiting outside. Historians tell us that the Babylonians were survivalists. Those people were preppers on steroids. The authorities had enough provisions stored inside Babylon to last them 20 years. So learning that, Cyrus realized uh, he's getting older. He couldn't wait forever. So he devised another plan. We mentioned last time that the great Euphrates River ran underneath the wall of Babylon and ran throughout the city and then exited through an opposite wall. So Cyrus, knowing that, recruited the best men from his army and he stationed half of them at the place where Euphrates entered Babylon. He stationed the rest of them, the other half, at the place where Euphrates exited Babylon, where the river ran out of the city. Then he took the remainder of his troops and went to a location outside Babylon where the Euphrates passed a huge swamp. There was a huge swamp there. He built a huge sluice gate or a canal there so he could divert the Euphrates River away from the city. Cyrus then ordered the soldiers at the front and back of the city where the river entered and where the river exited. He ordered them to watch the river. And once the water receded because of the diversion they had created, they were instructed to march into Babylon underneath the wall. As the water level began to recede, the soldiers tested the height of the river until they were able to stand erect on the riverbed without the water going over their heads. We assume the water level might have been chest high. Then during the night, one after another, from both ends, without even being seen, the entire army began to march through the water underneath the wall into Babylon itself. Remember, Babylon was the city Babylonians boasted could never be taken, but it was. Darius, or Cyrus, at age 62, and the Media Persian Empire captured this once great Babylonian empire. One historian said this invasion happened so fast and so caught the Babylonians off guard inside that there wasn't even a battle. Wasn't even a battle. There were executions, but no battle. There are more and more supposed prophetical experts that argue that the modern end-time Babylon mentioned in Revelations chapter 17 and 18 is the United States. I have read this from numerous sources that Babylon mentioned in Revelation is the United States. I guess that is possible. I don't subscribe to that. I am still unconvinced of that. I believe it is more probable that prophetical Babylon represents Antichrist final world system. It's called mystery Babylon, so we don't know for certain the identification of prophetical Babylon. There are though numerous parallels between ancient Babylonia and the United States. One commentator after commentator I have read Each of them have made the connection between ancient Babylon and our own nation. 
Most of them see this section from Daniel as a warning to our nation. During his evangelistic crusades, evangelist Billy Graham sometimes preached from this Daniel chapter 5. The first message from that text I found in the archives from Billy Graham Association was from 1958. He might have preached an earlier one, I'm not sure. But he edited and updated and repeated that sermon multiple times, numerous times throughout his career. His message posed a question and was entitled, quote, Is the handwriting on the wall, America? Is the handwriting on the wall, America? In one of those sermons, he extracted three points from Daniel's text. Those three points describe similarities between ancient Babylon and the United States. The first was indulgence. Indulgence. Indulgence means to permit oneself to enjoy the pleasure of something. To permit oneself to enjoy the pleasure of something, which in and of itself is permissible. Unless that something is illegal, immoral, or excessive. Indulgences, excessive indulgences, characterize Babylonians. Dr. Graham derived that conclusion from Daniel 5 and verse 1, where Belshazzar entertained a thousand guests at this banquet. Literal fortunes were spent on banquets and feasts. Babylonians indulged in pleasure to excess, as we sometimes do ourselves. Babylonia was the richest nation at that time, and people spent their riches on themselves, not unlike us. We aren't good at delayed gratification. We often indulge in things we cannot afford. That's the reason the average household credit card debt is $6,270. Remember, the average credit card interest rate is 16.5%. I just read an article on decadence, how that this nation is decadent. And this is from a non-Christian perspective. This is from an atheist, and I was shocked. He said, we don't judge ourselves based on experience and knowledge and giftedness, but we judge ourselves on our possessions. We seek more and more and more, racing against our peers to become the most mindless and robotic consumer, hoping that corporate products bring us fulfillment. We want to feel important and significant through our purchases that can be seen and touched by others. Not a significance we have earned through being more purposeful in our lives. The problem is we aren't committed to making a positive difference in other people. And instead at death, we leave behind a mega, a McMansion full of, fill in the blank, I will just use the word the benign word stuff, not the word he used. Uh, we just leave behind a McMansion full of blank. It seems we expend ourselves to stuffing our houses with Chinese-made products that no one will want after we die. I might add, we, uh, Hope and I, had significant credit card debt once. Um, but then in the early 2000s, we enrolled in Dave Ramsey's course, Financial Peace University, uh, changed our thinking about money matters. We cut up our credit cards. We paid off all the debt we had incurred. Took us more than four years to do that. And now we use debit cards. 
Correction, hope he has a debit card. I got nothing. No. <laughs> it's just how it works at our house. Second word to describe Babylon and us is indifference. Indifference. Though Shazer was aware that those media Persian troops were encamped just outside the Babylonian walls. But notice, he was completely indifferent to that danger and that threat. He was confident that he and the Babylonians inside were secure. It was an overconfidence, though. It was a false security, though, as is sometimes our own. The United States doesn't have the most people serving in the armed forces. In sheer numbers, we are third behind India, and then China has the most. China is not our friend, and China's goal is still world domination. Not the Chinese people, the godless Chinese communist government. But at this moment, we are still considered the strongest military. That is changing, though. Air Force General Frank Gornick has argued that the air power advantage the United States has had over Russia and China is rapidly shrinking. The National Defense Strategy Commission said the U.S. military could suffer an unacceptable high number of casualties and loss of major assets in its next conflict. It might struggle to win or it might lose a war against China or Russia. The report said the United States is particularly at risk of being overwhelmed should its military be forced to fight on two or more fronts simultaneously. Someone from that commission said it would seem that the U.S. military is at risk of no longer being able to go where it wants and do what it wants to whomever it wants. But our biggest threat, people, isn't external, although that is a viable threat. Our greatest threat is internal. Our current president has issued a record number of executive orders during his first week in office, he signed 21 executive orders. Compare that to his predecessors. President Trump signed four executive orders the first week. President Obama signed five executive orders. President Bush signed no executive orders the first week. President Clinton signed two executive orders. President Bush Singer Sr. signed one executive order. President Reagan signed no executive orders the first week. President Carter signed one executive order. Then after just 11 days in public office, our current president has signed 42 executive orders. He was on television. Remember seeing him on television sitting at his desk, smiling and uh, signing a stack of documents in rapid succession, sign one, handed another. It's extremely doubtful, extremely doubtful he read them. And if he did read them, I am certain he completely forgot what he read. <laughs> the real problem is not the unusual number of executive orders he has signed, although that is problematic. But the problem is how radical those executive orders are. People, our nation is being besieged. The threat isn't from medial Persians, but the threat is from socialists, Marxists, leftists, and I might add racist wokeness. And being woke is a joke. Twitter now removes people that tweet the biological fact, even a kindergartner understands that men cannot get pregnant. 
We are constantly being told, Dr. Fauci and others, listen to the science, listen to the science, except where wokeness doesn't tolerate science. The government's obscene spending and accumulating debt, and I blame both sides of the aisle for this, is more than just irresponsible. It's immoral because it's essentially stealing from our grandchildren and great-grandchildren who will be forced to pay much, much more in taxes in order to pay off the indebtedness that we have incurred. The president wants to rescind the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment bans federal tax monies from funding abortions except in rare and extreme cases, such as to save the life of the mother or in the case of rape or incest. The current administration wants the removal of the Hyde Amendment. The president earlier on rescinded the policy that bans U.S. tax monies from funding abortions in other countries. So effectively, moving forward, we are doing that. The president has used an executive order to further the outrageous demands from the LGBTQ movement, although I understand the more correct acronym is now LGBTQIA, where I represents intersexual and A represents asexual or allies of the entire movement itself. That acronym in and of itself is bizarre. The president's executive order calls for males to be permitted to enter private spaces for women, such as locker rooms and showers, and permits males to be full participants on women's sports teams. The language on this order also suggests that health insurance insurance plans be required to cover surgical gender transition procedures and that medical professionals should be forced to perform them. And most people are so indifferent to all of this. Because if we weren't indifferent, then we wouldn't elect some of the nonsensical, foolish, and godless people we elect to public office. If we weren't indifferent, then we wouldn't have the government we have. I just read Orkin. Orkin, the pest control company, just released the top 50 cities in the US with the most rats. For the sixth consecutive year, Chicago ranked number one with the worst rat population problem. I read that and I was shocked. In fact, I'm going to call Orkin. Someone has miscalculated because without question, the rattiest city in the nation is Washington, D.C. Has to be. And in terms of actual rodents, they are number four, just for the record. Anyway, it's the two-legged kind that bother me more than the four-legged kind. Third is irreverence. Irreverence. Belshazzar's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, after his conversion from paganism to Judaism, had decreed that all people throughout the empire were to give respect to the God of the Jewish people. He had started to worship the true God himself. He became a believer. But after his death, over time, his grandson had forgotten his grandfather's practice. His grandson had forgotten his instructions to the Babylonian people. Belshazzar and his 1,000 very important guests used those sacred consecrated vessels stolen from the Jerusalem Jewish temple to drink to their false gods and goddesses. There were more than enough utensils available that could have been used instead, 
But Belshazzar made the blasphemous decision to use the ones that had been dedicated to the true God. That was bad. People, it's getting worse. God has been so disrespected and blasphemed as he is now. Never been so disrespected and blasphemed as now. The current president at his inauguration, at the swearing-in ceremony, placed his hand on the Bible. And since then he has proceeded to contradict that holiest of all documents. John MacArthur said about that hypocritical act, quote, You can say whatever you want to, but when you place your hand on the throne of God, the throne of God, because God is himself enthroned in his word, and you place your hand on the word of God, and then do the very things that blaspheme his name, you talk about a high-risk action, that would be it. Don't tell me you advocate the slaughter of babies in the womb. Don't tell me you want to destroy masculinity, femininity, and marriage. Don't tell me you want to fill the government with members of the LGBTQ movement and want to justify transgender activists. Don't tell me you want to invite more Muslims representing a religion from hell into the administration and then dare put your hand on the throne of God. This is a post-Christian nation. And Dr. Graham's warning as early as 1958 was that he was afraid the handwriting was on the wall for us. People, it is. That was decades ago. The handwriting on the wall is now bigger and bolder than ever. And just as the Babylonian Empire no longer exists, the United States could also become extinct. That's the reason Thomas Jefferson made this statement, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. The Presbyterian Church USA, abbreviated PCUSA, is the largest Presbyterian denomination. Over time, that denomination that was once orthodox in its belief has apostatized, and it is now theologically liberal, although that denomination considers itself, quote, progressive. A committee was assigned the job of creating a new hymnal for the denomination. The committee wanted to add the modern hymn we sing here, and we appreciate, called In Christ Alone. Keith Getty and Stuart Townend co-authored that song in 2002. It was their first musical collaboration together. They have done a number of them since then. It is an extremely popular song. We're going to conclude our service singing that song. So this Presbyterian committee wanted to include it in their hymnal, but under one condition. Notice the second stanza. I won't sing it. I'll read it. I should torture you and sing it, but I won't. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. Listen carefully. That Presbyterian committee 
wanted to remove that line, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted it out. That is a critical line because it describes a doctrine called the plenary substitutionary atonement. Plena, excuse me, penal substitutionary atonement. That line describes how Jesus volunteered to take our sins onto himself on the cross. That's the substitutionary part. And then how God, in order to satisfy justice, God unloaded his wrath and anger against our sin and punished his son Jesus instead of us. That's the penalized part. That happened so that God could then be free to forgive our sin. Penal substitutionary atonement is the core of the gospel message. That line, though, about God being wrathful was unacceptable to those Presbyterians. And at a cost to them of thousands of dollars, Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend heard that request, listened, and said, No. No. Both men refused to grant permission to change those lyrics. And so the committee rejected that hymn. The PCUSA committee couldn't accept that God could be a God of wrath and judgment. I would suggest that committee speak to Belshazzar about that. I'm certain all of them will be together at some point, so that might be a meaningful discussion. There is, though, an individual application of this Daniel 5 account. Belshazzar was weighed in the balances on those scales and found wanting. We as individuals are weighed in those same scales and in our unsafe state we have been found wanting. According to God's scales we were too light. We don't weigh enough to be acceptable to God. We need the additional weight of His righteousness to be acceptable to Him. God is just. And in our unsaved condition, we are facing divine judgment, just as Belshazzar did. There is a solution, though. Solution is, to balancing that scale, is to receive Jesus Christ. If we believe on Him, trust Him, receive Him for ourselves then He adds, God adds, His righteousness to us. That's a doctrine called imputation. Imputation at salvation, at someone's conversion, righteousness from Jesus Christ is imputed or credited to us, and His righteousness then makes up for that weight that we're missing. Notice this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of the most Amazing passages in the entire New Testament. For he, God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless. God made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That's penal substitutionary atonement. Now, why did this happen? Why did Jesus sacrifice himself for us? That we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. How did Jesus become sin? We said he's sinless. He's, he was perfect. He became sin in the sense that on the cross, 
God treated Jesus as though he had committed every sin ever committed. That's how he became sin. Though in fact he had committed none of them. He was never for a single second a sinner. He was the perfect sacrifice on that cross. Now don't miss this. On that cross, God treated Jesus as though he had lived my sinful life. And then at the moment I received Jesus and salvation, God started treating me as though I had lived Jesus' perfect and righteous life. That's because at salvation, his righteousness was imputed or credited to me. So since I have Jesus, I have his perfect righteousness. And that is made up for the deficiency on those scales. The scales are now balanced. I am no longer found wanting. And I am now acceptable to God. The question is, the question is, the question is, are you? Let's bow our heads. Father, I know, I don't know anyone's heart. I don't even know my heart as you do. I don't know who in this room has taken advantage of that penal substitutionary atonement of your son. I don't know who in this room has had his righteousness imputed or credited to them at salvation. I don't know. But God, if there's anyone in this room who is not a Christian in the biblical sense of the word, If there's anyone in this room who has been weighed on those divine scales and is at this moment still found wanting, too light, don't don't weigh enough because we're missing God's righteousness. God, I pray that you will convict them. I will pray you will literally make them miserable until they come to the point where they're willing to surrender to your son, Jesus, and say, Jesus, I am such a sinner. I don't deserve salvation. I cannot save myself. And your son is the only hope I have. And I want him more than anything I want him in my life. And I surrender right now to him. I pray that will happen. Dear God, if there's anyone like that today in this room that desperately needs them to make that decision, I pray that they will come to me after the service. They will just come to me and say, Let's, Pastor, can we set up an appointment soon? I, I want to I make this decision because they could do it even today. God, thank you for what we've learned. It's a terrible and tragic example of a man who, he was weighed in the balances and found wanting. And that's how he died. And we'll never see him again. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you most of all for your patience and your love for us. And I thank you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.